Thanks, Taylor. Um, yeah, let me encourage you to open up uh, your Bibles to Revelation uh, chapter 2. So if you're not overly familiar with um, the Bible just yet, uh, Revelation is the very, very last book in the Bible. Uh, so make your way there. Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses together. Uh, we're not. We're going to read it in 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 a moment. Or uh, actually, Emily uh, McVickers is going to be reading for us this morning. Uh, she's recorded a video for us, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, but just so that you've got your finger in the right place. Over the past weeks, we have been working our way through some key biblical texts, which I suppose I believe are speaking directly into the life of our community. Uh, we started out on the 14th of June, uh, looking at chapters three and four of the book, the Old Testament book of Joshua. And uh, we were using those verses that we saw there to help us to reflect on what it means to be a people who are willing to get our feet wet. What does it mean to be a people who are willing to take risks? What does it mean to be a people, a community, willing to learn from what we're going through? To be the kind of church where everyone plays their part. And then last week we looked at another Old Testament text, uh, this time from uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 54. And we were using it, and through it, we were reflecting on what it means to be a community that embraces the expanding kingdom of God, joining him in his work of adding new people to his family through our lives, through our homes, through our resources, um, uh, the raw material of our time, energies, and emotions. But within all of that, what I've been sharing is something that God uh, had spoken to Louise about. Uh, when on our way through the Awakening series, the 40-day initiative in the run-up to Pentecost Sunday and through Pentecost itself, uh, we found God speaking and, and, and in different ways, and it's been an exciting season for us. But in that process, Louise heard God say that after awakening comes advancing. After awakening comes uh, advancing. Uh, so there's this sense, I suppose, that we have is that in this season, the Lord is doing something new in and through St. Catharines, um, and we are grateful for that. He's leading us forward. Uh, actually, what the dictionary says about the word advance, and I talked about this last week too, it actually means to move forward with purpose, to move forward with resolve and determination. So what I want to do uh, today is I want to build on what we've already been looking at over the last couple of weeks and to bring even more clarity uh, where I can to our sense of the direction that God is taking us, where he's leading us to be more, uh, to, to go move forward more purposefully in uh, for the future. And so to help us do that, we're going to hear Emily read for us from Revelation 2. So let's um, hear from her and then we pray. Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7, a message to the church in Ephesus. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look at how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favour. You'd hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Thanks, Emily. Um, okay, so um, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll move on. Lord, thank you for your word. And I'll pray that in the same way that you inspired these words to be written, that you would inspire our hearts and minds uh, as we reflect on them together as a family. And we ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So what I want to try and do in the time that we have left this morning is to, to have two focuses here as we reflect on this text. To begin with, I want to speak more broadly um, to thinking or, or helping us to reflect on what type of uh, literature we're dealing with here and when it comes to the book of Revelation. And then uh, secondly, I want us to think specifically about one strand that we see cropping up in chapter two. So let's start by reflecting on what we have here because I think that will ultimately help us in the long run. As with most ancient texts, the beginning is where we get uh, the most accurate sense of what a book is all about. So um, um, as we grapple with chapter two, uh, in a moment, we need first to turn to chapter one to get a better sense of uh, what we're dealing with here. And one of the first things that we notice uh, in, in, in just the opening verses of chapter one is that this book belongs to not just one, but to three distinctly different categories of literature, apocalypse, prophecy, and letter. So let's start with chapter 1, verse 1. There, there should be um, something that comes up on the screen as we make our way through. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, John writes. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. The, the Greek word that's used here for revelation or apocalypse um, it, it, it translates most accurately out of the Greek as an uncovering. So what we have here is a message from God that comes through uh, supernatural means and in a very particular kind of order with a strong focus on God's saving work in history and uh, his future plans and purposes for the world. But alongside of that, verse 3 goes on, if you've got the text still open in front of you, to describe the book of Revelation as a prophecy, and with that, verse 4, as a letter. Again, a slide should come up for you. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says. Verse 4, 
This letter is from John. So this isn't just some kind of out there apocalyptic text about the end of the world and God's saving work within us. As verse 3 describes for us, it has this text was designed with a very particular purpose in mind, to be used in public worship as a circular letter to seven churches that were in the Roman province of Asia, where John, we're told, um, and understand, exercise some kind of prophetic ministry among them. And the little reading I've done this week about what a prophetic ministry in this portion of the church would have looked like, it would have been, even in the absence of the prophets, the prophetic word or vision or whatever it was, whatever way God had spoken to them, what would have been read out in their absence if they weren't there in person. And so if we're going to do any justice at all to this text as a whole, it's important that we read chapter 2 in light of these three categories of literature, allowing them to shape our thinking and whatever meaning we hope to find there, which brings us to chapter 2. If you've got us uh, open in front of you, why don't you turn there with me? We've already seen this in chapter 1. Even just a, a brief snapshot of chapter 1 shows us all kinds of fascinating language and, uh, language and imagery, and it's exactly the same with chapter 2. Verse 1, if you follow with me, it begins with, by touching on some of the language chapter 1 has already used to describe the sovereignty of Jesus. Here in chapter 2, verse 1, we're, we're told Jesus declares himself that he holds the seven stars in his hands, that he alone is the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. And then in verses 2 to 3, the church is, I suppose, encouraged and congratulated for everything that it's done well. The bottom line being that when Jesus looked at the life of the church in Ephesus, he was delighted with uh, who they were and what they had done. They had worked hard, we're told. If you follow on the text, they had been patient when they were under threat and uh, at risk of persecution. We see that in verse 3 as well. And they had somehow, we don't get all of the information here, they had somehow been able to um, operate in a type of spiritual discernment, being able to um, draw clear lines for themselves as a community and for others subsequently, uh, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and what it didn't. And the text goes on to reference some time in the life of their community when someone had turned up in Ephesus trying to proclaim that they were an apostle and uh, the church in Ephesus were having none of it and they could see right through this person's behavior, their words and actions. But by the time we get to verse 4, the gears really seem to have changed quite a bit. And Jesus brings this stern warning. If you've got it open in front of you, uh, why don't we turn to it together? And I think depending on maybe the churches that you've grown up in, certainly growing up in this church over the last 20 plus years, this is a text that uh, I've heard quite a lot again and again. Hopefully it, the words will come up on the screen for you. Jesus says this, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Now, depending on the translation that you're using, whether it's NIV or the Passion Translation of the Message, that might look quite different for you there. But this translation in particular, and the different parts that it suggests, 
is actually quite helpful for our thinking. You don't love me or each other. And as you'll see, I think that's going to be quite important for our thinking as it develops. Again, similarly to the reference to um, uh, the, the person declaring to be an apostle, we don't get lot all the information here, but what we, what, what we can see is that somewhere, somehow, along the way, the, the, the church in Ephesus had abandoned something critical that Jesus now wanted them to reimagine with him. And the, now this text might refer to their love for Jesus himself. Certainly, any time I've heard this text taught on, um, that's what I've been told it means, that this text is all about our love for Jesus, not being what it ought to be or could be, and the encouragement or the rebuke to make sure that we get back to a better place. But that's not actually what's going on in the language of the text. And that's what I've been so fascinated. It's equally challenging, but just interesting um, in my study this week. Because in the early Christian sense, love was something that you did. Now, I don't mean works, okay? But in the early Christian sense, love was something that you did. And what I mean is that love as giving hospitality, for example, or offering practical help to those in need, particularly, although not exclusively, Christians who were poor, sick, and hungry, but all people, not just exclusively Christians. In fact, uh, the New Testament theologian N.T. Rice, uh, in his own commentary on this section, writes that, that, that love, in the way that I've just described it, and there should be a slide for this, was probably the chief mark of the early church in that no other non-ethnic group had ever behaved like this before. There's this kind of sense of really people just stuck to themselves and looked after their own. But that there was something different about the early church, that they cared and loved for everybody. And that's something that we need to really hold on to at this point. His point here, N.T. Rice, that is, is that loving this way made the church unique. Loving this way was most likely the best expression and the best advertisement there could be for their faith in Jesus Christ. Love of others being the best advertisement for the Christian faith. That's quite challenging, isn't it? Faith for them, the early church in Ephesus, it wasn't a sequence of ideas, rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts. It was about love in action, love in the flesh, as it were. But loving like this is easy to let slip, and Revelation 2 is evidence of that. It's easy, and this is, as I've sat with this and prepared this talk, I've realized how easy it is to settle down into a much more comfortable Christian existence, which is far less costly. Thinking back and referring what we're talking about here to some of the other things we've been exploring, being a community that takes risk, being a community that joins God in His inviting of new people into the family and through ours and using our time and our energy and our resources as a community. 
It's very easy to settle into a much safer expression, pulling away from that. And instead, we adopt an expression of community that chooses to put our own needs first and, and, and parks the idea of building or being part of a community that is essentially for people who don't belong to it yet. Loving the unlovable. People who aren't just like us. Or worse, removing the whole concept of other altogether. The, the message here, the bottom line for the church in Ephesus, that's if they were willing to engage with us, is that they needed to wake up. They needed to get back on track. They were being called and invited by Jesus to recover something that they had lost, something critical to their life together. And if you've got the text still open in front of you, why don't you turn with me to verse 5? That's what's so challenging about Jesus' words here. Look how far you have fallen, Jesus says. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent... I will come and remove your lampstand, Jesus said. It's not easy reading. And there's a, a triplet of connected parts here in this section that will be helpful for us to unpack just a little further. The words turn and repent used here are essentially saying the same thing. They, they mean the same thing. To change our minds, to turn around and to have find new purpose. But the word that Jesus uses here for look is slightly different. I want to just explore that for a moment. What he's saying here is, uh, is that I want you to remember. Think about the text in, in um, Joshua 3 and 4, even the, the, the action there of God saying to pick something up from the, 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 the ground in the, in the sea. Uh, as they passed over to help them remember. This is a theme that's important, I think, for us in this season as a church. What does it mean to remember? But what's different about the word that Jesus uses here is that it means to remember and respond. Verse 5, this invitation to the Ephesians is not just into a mental exercise where we think our way through things. And that's important for us to register is equally as challenging. It's not enough to see things as they really are and be honest about how far maybe we've drifted from love of others, like Revelation is saying. This text is about being invited to do something about what we see, the drift, the gap, the lack or the poverty of love for others there is in our expressions of community. And for us to do that, we might, need, might help us to process some of our hang-ups, maybe, if we have them, with the concept of repentance. Because I think probably it's, been a, it's a word that's been misused by the church from time to time, and maybe guilty of pushing people, pushing more people away than drawing them in. And that's created quite a bit of pain and misunderstanding both within and outside the church. But repentance is a word that we cannot do without. 
Repentance is not a once-for-all act that brings us into faith, and it's not uh, feeling sorry or sad about things in the past. Repentance is about opportunity, not disapproval. Repentance is about opportunity, not disapproval. It's the constant invitation from God in and through the Spirit, into a new way of living, into a new way of being human, which is based on and rooted in what Eugene Peterson would say, the unforced rhythms of grace. We don't have anything to prove or work for. God wants us to be where He is, walking in step with Him. God loves us. God's not mad at us. In fact, he loves us so much that when things come, when we allow things to come between us and him, when, like Revelation 2 suggests, when we find ourselves in the position of realizing that something's come between us and the way we're called to love others, he gives us this opportunity, he provides us a way to recalibrate, to repent, to look again, to remember to see our need of grace and to avail of it. To turn back to him. To realize those places in our lives where God is not first. Where God is not at the center. And then he enables us to pray, which we've been praying since the beginning of awakening. Lord, tear down all that divides. Tear down everything that separates us from you and separates us from the love of others. At this point in the text, it takes an unexpected swerve. If you look at verse 6, we're introduced, John introduces us to a group of people called the Nicolaitans. Just to drive home his point, I think. And we don't know a huge amount about who they were, only to say that they were a group of Christians in Ephesus who had chosen another path other than the one that Jesus was offering. And they had conformed to the culture around them, and they were um, known to be those who would eat uh, the food given to or sacrificed to idols and somehow had also wandered far from the love of others. But why would Jesus highlight them here for us? Why is that important for us to think about? I suppose the question that the Nicolaitans leave us with is this. What will our path as a community be? Will we live lives marked by patient endurance and the love of others as laid out for us here in Revelation 2? Will we follow the way of repentance or will we conform to what's an offer in the culture around us and adopt instead to the stance of it's not family, it's everyone for themselves. Let's just enjoy life while we can. What will we choose? I started out earlier 
this morning by talking about what it means to move forward with purpose as a church and with determination. I think there's something happening here in Revelation 2 that speaks to how we are being called to journey as a church family. I think this speaks directly into the heart of the process that God is bringing us through. And as we learn to be a people who aren't afraid to take risks, to be a community where everyone plays their part, as we learn to be a community that embraces the ever-expanding work of the kingdom of God and giving our all to it, sparing no expense, a people who are learning to partner with God as he adds to his family through the raw materials of our lives and our living spaces and our resources, Revelation 2 adds into the mix of all of that the challenge to be a people that never let go of the contagious and self-giving love of God in Jesus Christ. And to let that love of others shape our life together as a church and to ensure that it never leaves what makes St. Catherine St. Catherine's. We don't want to be a church that's just shaped and formed by the culture we're in. We want to be centered on the person of Jesus and we want to imitate his love for the world in the way that we reach out to others, especially those who don't yet belong to his church. So I've got two questions as we close before Ryan is going to come with Mick and lead us. Again, I want to encourage you. Maybe this is a request and not a question. I want to ask you to give your yes. Join your yes to mine. To being a church and to being a community that loves like this. That might mean change in the coming years. It might mean the needs of others coming before our own. It might mean us being willing to take risks in new kinds of ways. Are we up for that? I want to, us to give our wholehearted yes uh, to this as a community. I want to embody in my life and in the life of this community the self-giving, contagious love of Jesus to everyone we meet. And here's maybe a more personal question. Hearing what you heard this morning about the invitation into repentance, this opportunity, not disapproval, where do you most need the recalibration of repentance in your life today. As Ryan comes, Lord, thank you for your word and for the challenge that it brings. We hear from Revelation 2, this invitation to love you with our whole hearts, but in addition to that, to really be clear of the call that you have on our lives to love others. And I pray, Lord, that you show us how to be all that you're calling us to be and how to do all that you're calling us to do in this season. We ask and pray these things 
in and through the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.